0: Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer.
1: Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers episode 21, where we're traveling back to 1963 and the 20th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Samuel Barber, for his piano concerto Opus 38. So we've talked about Samuel Barber before. This is a repeat. But any further thoughts you've got there, Dave, about good old Sam Barber? Oh, I'm trying to think what I
0: said in the last time when we talked about Vanessa. Uh, I think I mentioned that he didn't like Charles Ives very much.
1: I think you mentioned that every time we I talk I... about Samuel Barber. Did you know?
0: Did you know he said some very disparaging That's words right. about Ives? Um, not really anything new. I think I, my opinion of him is still... Very competent, good craftsman, neo-romantic, uh, kind of out of his time. And I'll say, that as a preview of today's episode, that I think uh, that the piano concerto is is a pretty interesting work for a lot of reasons, and maybe is a little bit more of its time in the early 60s than Vanessa. I don't know. We'll, we'll see when we get into it. Yeah,
1: Vanessa is definitely, as we talked about in the episode, it's bef- basically a kind of European import into the United States. And I think this is uh, him showing himself more as an American, but he's known in many ways as an American. If you think of Knoxville, Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. uh, orchestral song, and he did some Americana like that, that I think people, and and wrote blues. I mean, those types of things that, that are included in his musical language that mark him as an American. But I think temperamentally and structurally, uh, aesthetically, he's a European in
0: many ways. Yeah, and very much so. And I think he certainly was influenced by his partner, but two-time winner, another two-time winner, a Monati.
1: I know, that's um, a Pulitzer Prize household there, uh, Capricorn. <laughs> I wonder
0: how they uh, put all four of them up. Maybe they were all displayed somewhere. Or, uh, yeah, I have to look for pictures to see how the, the Monati barbers had their uh, <laughs> had their Pulitzers displayed. But that is pretty impressive that they... In between the two of them. And certainly Menotti is more, obviously was European, but uh, had that European sensibility. And I think that that came through on, on Barber as well. So
1: well, let's tell the story a bit about what was going on around and behind this concerto.
0: Telling the story.
1: All right. So the concerto, the piano concerto was a commission by G. Shermer, and it was the 100th Anniversary of the company's founding and they wanted to have a big splash. So they asked Samuel Barber to write this he began working on it in 1962 finished it the same year evidently came pretty quickly He knew John Browning which we can talk a little bit about mm-hmm. John Browning great pianist But he knew him because he had played the piano sonata and said this is the guy And so he basically wrote the concerto for John Browning and it became one of his signature pieces for the rest of his life Right, and I don't know if you about you, but I'm I can
0: picture right now the Shermer Barbara editions; it has the SB exactly. It's of, gray, yeah, gray with, yeah. with the initials uh, signature on it. So you, that's the that very much associated. Like Peters is associated with Cage, or there's certain composers. So and there's a certain look. And a look. Once, yeah. you've, once you've had those scores, they kind of imprinted. If you've looked at them, much. exactly, exactly. And yeah, as you said, John Browning. This is kind of his piece. It right. Was, his whole life basically played this piece, and he played all of Barber's music, but especially that particular concerto. And what's interesting about it is where it was premiered and the whole saga behind it. So nowadays you go to New York and you go want to go here to the Philharmonic or to go to the Met, you go to Lincoln Center or you go to Juilliard. And so it's the great cultural center, obviously, still today, uh, but
1: a little, controversial. little controversial how yeah. it
0: came about. It wasn't just a nice uh, park that they just built into this major cultural center. What did they do instead?
1: Well, it was an area called Lincoln Square, which is where the name comes from. It's not the Abraham Lincoln Center. Yes. <laughs> it's called Lincoln Square. And the city was going through a period of redevelopment or of going to the urban areas and trying to revitalize them or gentrify them, we might call mm-hmm. it today. Uh, and the person behind this, uh, behind the mayor's committee on slum clearance, which Ooh. talk about a <laughs> charged Asian. name, uh, his name, name, man's name was Robert Moses, and he really kind of shaped mid-20th century New York what it looked like. And this urban renewal plan, they wanted to level 18 city blocks the Upper West Side and put up commercial, residential, educational facilities. But to do so, they had to clear out the slums, as they said. They had to get rid of all these people who were living there, which of course, uh, if you think it was controversial, if they did that today, it was still controversial back in the 1960s, taking more than seven... Thousand families and relocating them out of the area so they could build up what now is the Lincoln Center area. Yeah, that, it's, it's st- uh, they
0: do that in a lot of cities, and that's kind of how how it's done. Uh, but uh, I think we're glad we have those cultural uh, places now, and they've certainly contributed a lot to the country. Uh, and this particular piece was part of the opening gala in September of '62. And how about this for an interesting group here that featured the premiere of Copeland's Connotations, which uh, we'll talk about in a second, with New York Philharmonic and, and Bernstein conducting. And then the second night, which is when this piece was performed, was Eric Leinsdorf. And uh, we'll, we'll get into the program info a little bit later, but it had John Browning. So uh, compare this to, to Copeland's Connotations here.
1: Uh, did that go over very well? Yeah, you couldn't find two more disparate reactions. So Copeland's Connotations, this is a time when Copeland was embracing abstraction and angularity and dissonance. And so Connotations is one of his most dissonant (laughs) atonal pieces uh, that he wrote in his life. And my favorite story about it was, of course, all the beautiful people were there, including Jackie Onassis. Oh, yeah, that's right. Jackie Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And she came up to Aaron Copeland afterwards and said, oh, mr copeland just <laughs> didn't know what to do with this piece so you have that on the one hand and who's heard of copeland's connotations it's completely disappeared yeah it's a 12-tone piece that's what yeah, people know about it you go to the other side uh the next night with samuel barber's piano concerto which is there a more played piano concerto from an american composer it's hard to find one right so it's the complete opposite reaction between the two nights and the two men who were amongst the most celebrated american composers of their time so it makes sense they would commissioned them, uh, but this is in some ways <laughs> emblematic of where their careers were about to really start going.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. So maybe we should go behind the notes and talk about this piece. Behind the notes. Well, when I listen to the piano concerto, uh, it, it just it screams Barber. It just has all of the traits. You've got the uh, second movement particularly is just so one might say cloying. Uh, (laughs) You might say cloying. The rest of us (laughs) might say beautiful. To to, to that point, I looked today on Spotify of one of the recordings of it, and you have all three movements listed with the amount of hits. The second movement had over 100,000 or like a lot of hits, and the other two movements had barely any, like 10,000, 12,000. So clearly the second movement is, I mean, it's very beautiful. We'll get into that. Uh, But the, the first movement, kind of big piece, sounds like sonata form, two themes, kind of uh, muscular kind of sound, and then the third movement has a very fast 5-8. Uh, it's not a dance, but it's sort of... Like,
1: yeah, it has that propulsive has that perpl- yeah. yeah it doesn't
0: let go. That's a good way to put it. So thinking about him as the American romantic, uh, do you when you hear Barber, this piece, does it strike you that you're hearing like thinking of other 20th century romantics like Rachmaninoff, or does it
1: sound like that? Or So the second movement does. Yeah. The yeah. second movement, I, I listen to it and I go, oh, am I listening to Rachmaninoff second, or am I listening to Barber piano? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of connections uh, in terms of the, the musical aesthetic there. But if I'm thinking about him as an American romantic, I guess the final movement, the third movement, is where I hear a little bit of that kind of Americanness. It's kind mm-hmm. of jazzy in sections. Yeah. but for the most part, I think romantic is a perfect kind of descriptor of him. And I would even say not American, maybe American slash European romantic, because it has a lot of that musical language in it. Yeah. And the typical kind of back and
0: forth dialogue between the the orchestra and the piano. Uh, I'm not a professional pianist, but it sure sounds very hard. It's incredibly hard. hard. It's incredibly hard. Very virtuosic. And so you have a lot of this back and forth, uh, kind of bouncing off each other, and some really flashy piano glisses and uh, things like that, and, and color for orchestral writing, yeah. especially the first movement. Uh, it's kind of dark, I would say. The first movement's sort of.
1: It is. And, you know, we can talk about him being European, and we keep kind of harping on that. It's in a three movement form. I mean, it, t- yeah, it, it hits the traditional form, but the beginning is not traditional. So I think we should listen to the first minute or so because it is. Uh, it tells you a little bit about what's going on here. So let's let's listen a little bit. Where's the orchestra? Where's the orchestra? I know. That's Just, the that's to me the first thing is you're used to hearing. Hey, here's the big theme in exposition. the orchestra. Yeah. That's what you're supposed to hear, and the piano gets to sit there and bask in the glow yeah. before they have to come in. But here it's all the pianist right away, first minute, no orchestra, and these short little. Uh, I read a description. They said they're very muscular, yeah. right? Yeah. They're, they're short little statements. Very. Um, you don't know where you're going. They're, they don't have a clear sense of direction mm-hmm. at the beginning. Not until the orchestra really comes in with that first big theme. Can you kind of sit back and go, ah, I know where we're going. Right. Yeah, it's very motivic. I think that's
0: something that stands out in the c- compared to the second movement, which is very, very melodic lyrical. and you know, lyrical. Uh, I think this is much more, like you say, kind of these short little patterns and motivic that then eventually will get played back and forth. And also, it does have a lot of good counterpoint. I'm always a big fan, as we know on this podcast. I love some counterpoint, uh, but uh, it to me it, it, it's a little long. Uh, it kind of doesn't it, maybe that sense of not going anywhere it does drag a little bit, but uh, it's good. I mean, there's some some nice nice interplay. I think damning with faint praise. That, <laughs> it's
1: good. It's <laughs> good,
0: really. It is. No,
1: it's no, it's good. It certainly is. Yeah, I don't think it's a little bit. It doesn't seem to me to be too long. Maybe I've heard it too many times that I kind of have a sense of where it's going. Um, But I will say that uh, I would be one of those Spotify listeners who would jump to the second movement (laughs) because uh, it really is beautiful. Let's just listen a little bit to the opening of that second movement.
0: some very nice woodwind writing there. I think there's some oboe, some English horn. Uh, the second movement reminds me a lot of the Ravel, like you said, Rachmaninoff, but also the Ravel G major oh, yeah. slow movement too. That's a great
1: connection. I hadn't thought kind of
0: that. Of, yeah, long, not, not the harmony is not not very complicated no. and moving all over the place, very static and just lovely.
1: Well, even the melodic, especially just the section we listen to, even the melodic um, line is not complex no it moves basically around the same pitches again and again and again just kind of you know lets them flow out so that you really can after the fireworks of the first movement kind of sit back and go ah Mm -hmm. which is what the slow movement should do before you get to that kind of real firecracker of the final (laughs) movement yeah
0: exactly so I, i like it i i I tend, you know, I have that sort of aversion immediately because I went to the University of Illinois, as you did as well. And the, you know, the composition program there, they're very, uh, it got to be a little bit avant-garde. You don't want to just fall for the, the the simple pleasures, the simple melody, the beautiful melodies. But I, I will say... It, You're also Ives, who I, didn't yeah, lag like your
1: ears to lay back in an easy chair. No, that's right. <laughs> no
0: sugar plum ears. <laughs> that's right. Here. So I I have to say I did kind of fall for it when I listened again this morning, just to refresh my ears. And I thought, oh, that you know, it's very beautifully crafted and uh, and memorable. And I can see why it's popular, and that's that's not a bad thing at all. So then that third movement, as we said, yeah, it gets into five eight. So I would imagine that's very difficult to sync with the orchestra and yeah, just because it's very propulsive, rhythmic, jagged, uh, kind of got an edge to it and exciting ending too it
1: is and in many ways um, to me I love the second movement to me maybe this is the best movement just because of I love that 5-8 feel that gets you a little bit off kilter I just love that drive that he puts in that um, it's just absolutely amazing and just the kind of uh, the gestures that the pianist is doing just flinging notes everywhere it's absolutely phenomenal yeah
0: and it builds and builds. It's got kind of an ostinato that you keep hearing throughout. And then eventually it breaks and you hear the kind of rush to the end, da-da-da-da, kind of ending. And you can just imagine the audience.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. it's definitely, you can tell that he wrote this. He went, and people will clap yes. here. That's <laughs> exactly. exactly what he's doing.
0: Exactly. Yeah, there's no, no confusion about how it ends. So so it's pretty, pretty successful. I mean, the piece runs about, what, 20, 20-something minutes? Yeah,
1: it's about right for a second half concerto. Yes. Yeah. About where you... Yeah, want to put it. So it it fits. You can tell that Barber knew his audience Mm. and he knew kind of the situation in the early 1960s, what people would be looking for and listening. It's just enough uh, dissonance and angularity to say, look, I'm kind of modern, (laughs) but not enough that it's going to turn off a New York well-heeled elite audience that's coming to celebrate the opening of Lincoln Center.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Compare that to the Schoenberg Piano Concerto, which I like a lot, but I don't think it would. Quite,
1: it wouldn't sell as it wouldn't well. Sell
0: as well as this one because it's it hits all the the spots. Like think about you know Rachmaninoff or Prokofiev or any of those 20th century greats. They it's it's based enough in tradition yet modern enough to keep people interested. And I can see why it's popular and why Browning made it such a staple of his repertoire.
1: Well, maybe we should talk about whether this is a hit or a miss. I think we know what the audience might have said, but we can. <laughs> see what the critics were saying, and then what we heard from our Pulitzer board. Hit or miss. So do you want to start with the critics, or do we start with what the Pulitzer Ooh. board had to say to this one? Well,
0: let's start with the critics here. I want to hear, I bet our old friend Harold Schoenberg has something to
1: say. Of course, we're very re- yeah. reliant on Harold Schoenberg at this point in the Pulitzer history. Yeah. Well, writing in the New York Times, he said, it made a decided hit with the audience. So there we go, it's already a hit. Okay. And it may be that Mr. Barber has supplied a repertory piece. This is a real virtuoso concerto with some staggeringly difficult writing. It also has a strong melodic profile, a lyric slow movement, and a sense of confidence in the entire conception, the confidence that comes only from an experienced composer engaged in a work that interests him.
0: You know, that's actually, I think, kind of how I feel. I think I
1: pretty much agree with that. It's
0: got the virtuosity, staggeringly difficult, Strong melody, lyric slow movement, confidence, uh, experienced composer, certainly by that point Barbara was. So I, I, I think that's a pretty good uh, good description. And then
1: you have others, too. Yeah, the Christian Science Monitor, they echoed it, but even more short and punchy in their description. Tremendous success, ecstatic applause, a concerto that should find a universal welcome. So, mm.
0: Yeah, yeah, very true. So it was very popular, performed about 150 times within a six-year period following 1962, 40 times in 1963 alone. Which is
1: astonishing for a new work. Yeah, yeah. Does anything get
0: performed that much? I mean, thinking of our other Pulitzer Prize winners to come, um, anybody have? for maybe a Short Ride in a
1: Fast Machine or something from John Adams. But that didn't win the Pulitzer. No, it didn't win the Pulitzer. That's Transmigration true. of Souls, maybe, the John Adams yeah. 9-11 piece. That maybe had maybe. the same That's... kind of. But uh, for the most part, no. this is a rarity. I mean, we have to go back to Appalachian Spring exactly. to kind of find a piece that hit that big that quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen so many pieces, especially from the mid-1950s, that we can't find scores for. <laughs> They're so, so difficult to... Well, they just didn't have the kind of legs that the piano concerto here has had. Yeah. And also to give you an idea of how much Browning loved the work, in the first 20 years of its existence, so from 1962 to 1982, Browning performed it over 150 times. So wow. average seven times a year that he was performing this work, just to keep it in your fingers. It's yeah. so hard yeah. over that time. Uh, he claimed that he performed it over 400 times over the course of his lifetime.
0: That's devotion. That's That's, devotion to a piece. Yeah. I don't know if I could do that. I think i get bored
1: after a while. I think there's no question. (laughs) Well, what did the Pulitzer board say about this?
0: Okay. So we'll go to our uh, friend here, Miles Kestendick, uh, who had something to say about this. Um, He says, and Irving Kolodin, or Kolodin, I don't know how you say it. Uh, I'm closing this, blah, blah, blah. Irving and I take pleasure in nominating Barber's Piano Concerto for the Pulitzer Prize. It received its world premiere with the Boston Symphony, Eric Leinsdorf conducting. Blah blah blah. So the other, only other work discussed was Carlisle Floyd's opera, The Passion of John Wade. Okay, that one didn't. That's one that didn't, didn't, didn't survive. Yeah, no. uh, but this lacked the distinction that is quite evident in The Barber. Seldom has an American work won such spontaneous acclaim in a concert hall as The Barber. An indication of how well the public responded to it to have critical approval in such a chord speaks well for its merits. Uh, and then he also talks about how uh, the piano concerto was commissioned, all of this. It is more than in one more, it is in more ways than one a worthy successor to Barber's previous prize winner, Vanessa. So mm. he does mention that this is the second time for Barbara and the committee of course is concerned. They're always very concerned about giving it again, but uh, in this case, it was a clear choice. I'm curious what you think of the, this is a heavy concert. So the, as we said, it was premiered in 62, uh, at the uh, uh, September 24th, opening week of Philharmonic Hall. of Overture to War and Peace Then the Eroica Symphony. Oh, my word. That's just the first (laughs) half? That's the first half. Then the intermission. Then Barber Piano Concerto. And then Strauss to Eulenspiegel. Oh, my gosh.
1: What a huge concert. That is an enormous concert. I guess they want to make sure people got their money's worth for whatever they pay to come to the opening. of That's true.
0: Big gala. Yeah. So huge.
1: One concert. intermission, though, that means four intermissions. I know
0: the Eroica. I'd be exhausted just after the Eroica and the first half, and then come back for the Piano Concerto and Till
1: Spiegel by Strauss. So, uh, ah, yeah. yeah, long concert, but but it also shows what they felt about the piece that they mm. would put it against those very much acknowledged cornerstones of the repertoire, and not just you know light fluffy cornerstones, no. but serious heavy pieces that have been studied and talked about and performed ad nauseum, and they're going to put the barber up in there. I think it shows what the musicians at the time felt about the piece and what the Pulitzer board is responding to. Great points. And also another point we've talked about,
0: putting him within all those Europeans. I think it would fit pretty well after Beethoven and before Strauss. I think you could...
1: Well, you would take that out and put Brahms, which to me in many ways what he's doing musically is American Brahms. Yeah,
0: Absolutely. So, yeah. So it seems to make a pretty good uh, splash here at this concert, and I would be tired after that one, but but still a good a good showing. So, what do you think in, in total here? Is this a hit or a miss for you? I think I have an idea.
1: Yeah, this is a big hit for me. I've always, I mean, I have a soft spot. Barber was some of the earliest kind of modern American piano literature I learned when I was a, a young tyke learning <laughs> piano. So I've always had a soft spot for Barber, and I love his Piano Sonata. And this just kind of flows from the same kind of musical impulse. So big hit for me. What mm-hmm. about you? I know that you're more ambivalent about someone who doesn't like Charles E. Ives. I know. I, I, despite that and being
0: uh, running hot and cold with the music of Barber, uh, I'll give this one a hit too. Uh, it had to grow on me a little bit. It didn't, unlike the audiences apparently who just loved it right away. Uh, it, it, maybe it's partly because of my walls that I've put up around Barber based on his aesthetics, which are not quite mine. Uh, but the more I listen to it, I think it is a really successful work and one I would love to hear in concert. I know it's performed, clearly it's still it performed, is. but uh, I have not heard it ever live, so I would, I
1: would enjoy that, I think. I also think it's a, I think it's a more worthy Pulitzer winner than Vanessa. Mm. I think it's a better work than Vanessa. So they're being concerned about giving it the second prize. I think they could have not given it to Vanessa and instead given just this, that they were concerned about one prize to Samuel Barber, but of course they couldn't know the future. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, well, enjoyable
0: work overall. So that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, HearingThePulitzers.com where you'll also find links in a short bibliography where you can read more about Samuel Barber again. And I'll include that quote about Ives just because. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at, at @hPulitzers Pulitzers for links between episodes. Finally, join us next episode for the first time in its history. The Pulitzer Prize Board did not award a prize in music, fiction, or drama. It was a scandal that only grew the following year.
1: Ooh. Yeah, a well, preview of things to <laughs> preview, come. Yes.
0: So, until then, keep listening.